The second chapter of Luke is the place where our text is found. It's kind of a lengthy text, really verses 19 through 20 through 35. And so I'll just read the 19th verse because that really is the, is the heart or the thesis of what I want to say today on Mother's Day. How do you, how would you make a model of, a, of motherhood? She must be assertive and yet affectionate, tender and yet tough, romantic and yet realistic. I think perhaps that the greatest um, model of motherhood might be Mary, the mother of Jesus. And verse 19, in the context of all that went on in the Christmas story, says, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. St. Catherine of Siena was a religious, very religious person from her childhood. But even as a child, she had difficulty relating to, her, to people, especially her parents. She resented childhood chores. And she wished or longed for the ability to cloister herself in some convent and withdraw from, from society, really. But one of her teachers counseled her and told her, that she could develop a little cell in her heart to which she could inwardly retire. And the wise teacher called that little inward cell the interior castle of the soul that no fear or trouble could ever invade. I guess that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had that interior castle of the soul because Luke in his tender-hearted and loving way said that Mary pondered these things treasured up in her heart. Now what were these things that Mary treasured in her heart, this model of motherhood? It would be only speculation, to, it would be pure speculation to try to determine those things she treasured in her heart. And yet it seems to me that if the scripture is true, that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If we could find what these things were, it might give us the secret of Mary's ability to become a model mother. The first thing that she might have pondered in her heart was the love and appreciation she had for her husband. Joseph. It wasn't easy for that man in his day. As a matter of fact, just to hang in there in the engagement to his wife required a tremendous amount of courage and faith and confidence. But even when he thought that Mary had done him a great wrong, he had no desire to, hum to humiliate or to punish her. And Mary knew that in this man was a tremendous strength of character and she loved him for it. And even though she would nurture a great love for her baby Jesus 
and for his brothers and sisters yet to be born. Her love for Joseph was a special kind of love, and theirs was a special kind of marriage. So Jesus grew up with the model of a marriage that was based upon mutuality of trust and love and faith with the same kinds of values. And after all, isn't that what marriage is about? The supporting of husband and wife of each other, isn't that really the main role of the Christian wife to support her husband? so that he always knows that she is his best friend. Even if he's a coach who loses every game, or a businessman who loses his business, or a laborer who loses his job, he knows he can go home and find there a woman who loves him, who will pick him up and dust him off and believe in him when everyone else does not believe in him. Unfortunately, that mutual supporting role has gone south in many marriages. You say, well, does that really matter? Of course it matters. A number of years ago, a husband and wife team by the name of Sorokin interviewed and studied a thousand young people. Five hundred of them were delinquent and five of them were not. And they made some interesting observations. They found that delinquency was relative, that is, the juvenile delinquent was not necessarily the boy who was born on the wrong side of the tracks or the girl who was, the, uh, was socially outcast. As a matter of fact, many times delinquent, the delinquent would come from the best family and the best surroundings and would be the most socially acceptable. They found that in almost every case of, of, of delinquent boys, they, they hated their fathers. And 65% of those who hated their fathers learned to hate their fathers by the time they were five years old, which means that they developed this hatred before we think a child reaches the age of accountability can be saved. But the most remarkable observation of all... knew that this man was a special kind of man and she loved him for it. For in that day in the Jewish home, the responsibility of religious instruction rested primarily on the father. So if Jesus at the age of 12 confounded the religious teachers in the temple, it must mean that Joseph had done his job well. Let me say parenthetically that that responsibility has not changed. Now I know what most of us think. If I take my children to church where they can teach them about God, I have done my responsibility. You have not done your responsibility. The church doesn't have the, doesn't have the equipment to teach what you do not teach at home. We don't have them here long enough. As a matter of fact, the responsibility in the religious instruction that the church has is just as it was in the day of Jesus in the wise men in the temple. We're just here to confirm what they're supposed to learn at home, especially from their fathers. And most psychologists say that a child develops his image of God from the concept his father gives. If his father's harsh, his concept of God is harsh. If his father is tender and loving, his concept of God is of a tender, loving father. So if Jesus could teach 
that the heavenly Father is a giver of good gifts and withholds no good gifts to his children, can we not infer that Joseph was just like that? No wonder Mary loved him. She saw in the character of that man a, a, a strength and a courage and a faith that moved her pure heart. She loved him. He was somebody special. And I imagine in my imagination that as she sat there in that stable with her baby in her arms and expressed gratitude to God that he had chosen her to be the handmaiden of the Lord and to bear the Messiah. And she was grateful to God for the birth of her baby. She must have looked across that stable into the face of her husband and said to God, of all the men of Israel, I, you have given me Joseph and I am most blessed. She pondered in her heart the love and appreciation for her husband. She must have treasured in her heart the mystery of birth. What a strange and miraculous thing is the birth of a baby. So mysterious was birth to that ancient world that men thought that the gods had, in, had vested in women a magical power to give birth. The result being that men in the ancient world worshipped female goddesses, Isis and Diana and Venus. And then Jesus came along and he taught us that the biological capacity to conceive and bear a child is not some magical power of the gods, but a divine endowment of the Creator that enables a woman to imitate the Creator in bringing new creatures into being. And she pondered that miracle and that mystery of birth. Now I know that our imagination is caught up in the miracle of the stable and the star, but the greatest miracle that happened in Bethlehem that night was the miracle of the birth of that baby. Ironically, some of the greatest mysteries and miracles are the ones we take for granted. Could it be that there would ever be an atheist in a delivery room? Could a mother ever hold her newborn in her arms for the first time and not feel something sacred had happened? Could it be that a mother would hold in her arms for the first time her newborn and not hear something inside of her saying, tell him thank you? Now I know that Mary must have felt this indeed is a divine and sacred event, but I also have a firm conviction that she had the same feeling each time each of her children were born. And we have not celebrated this day and we have not done what we should until we understand that every child is a child of God and every birth is special. I know it's the practice now that, that fathers are invited into the delivery room for the birth of their babies. That was before my time. Now I'm a little bit, uh, you know, 
squeamish, you know, about certain things. And they'd have probably had to catch me, you know, with a net, you know, to, to, to get me in. But I've talked to some fathers who have been there with their cameras and, and, and have said that it was, seriously, that it was the most beautiful and significant experience of their life. There is nothing, nothing more mysterious and miraculous than the birth of a baby. And what greater evidence is there of a loving and purposeful God than the birth of a child? Someone said that when God wants to do a great work or He wants a great wrong to be righted, He does not stir up His earthquakes or send out His thunderbolts. He causes a baby to be born. Sometimes in a simple home to an obscure parent and he has this ideal in his mind and he puts it into the heart of the mother and she into the mind of the child. Said he, the greatest force in the world are, the greatest forces in the world are not the earthquakes and not the thunderbolts but the births of babies. The most significant event that is happening at this moment is not taking place in the Near East or the Middle East. It is not taking place in the, in the United Nations or around some conference table or in some laboratory. The most important event in any community is taking place in the delivery room of a hospital in the birth of a baby. For example, in 1809, Napoleon was running rampant across Europe, spreading his wars. But the top story in 1809 was not Napoleon's wars. That was the year that Charles Darwin was born. That was the year Felix Mendelssohn, the German composer, composer was born. That is to say that every time a child is born, every time one stands, one is held here by parents standing here, every time a child is born, God is saying, I'm giving you a chance to make this a better world. And so Mary pondered in her heart the mysterious miracle of the birth of her baby. A third thing she must have pondered in her heart was the question, where is this going to take me? What is, my gonna, what is my responsibility to this boy going to be? Have you asked that? Have you not asked that question? Every parent here this morning has had that question raise its hand and demand an answer. How, will, how much are you willing to sacrifice for this child? How far are you willing to go for him? What is going to be demanded of me? What commitment am I being asked to make? Will there ever be a time when this boy will pierce my heart in sorrow? Mary must have pondered that. And later on, this man Simon comes to her and says, this boy, this child, shall be for the fall and rising of Israel. Notice the order, we say, for the rise and fall. He said, for the fall and rise of Israel. He's going to bring Israel down. And a sword will pierce your heart also. Mary must have pondered that. 
in her heart. One day a mother came to Jesus and she said, I got two special boys, James and John. I'll tell you what I want you to do, Jesus. I want you to let one of them sit on the right hand and one on the left. Now, the mother of James and John has taken a lot of flack over that request, I'm telling you. I mean, she's gotten a bad name for that. But doesn't that sound like your mother? I mean, I want what's, my kid is just extra special, so I want one of them on the right hand, I want one on the left. I want them to always be near you. I want the mantle of glory to fall on them when you're gone. I want them to be first in the kingdom. What mother would not want that? But the thing that intrigues me is the response that Jesus made. And the scripture said, listen carefully, the scripture said, and Jesus spoke to them now, who are the them? James and John, yes, he spoke to them, but also to their mother. Jesus spoke to them, James and John and the mother, and said, are you willing to drink the cup that I drink? Now, always when I've read through that, I thought, well, he's talking to James and John. But, and it just dawned on me as I was reading in this thing this week in preparation for this sermon. Jesus was addressing that statement as well to their mother. And he was saying this, are you to the point? Can you make a commitment? The commitment it will take for that, my glory to fall on them. Are you willing to make the commitment that, that will re be required of you as their mother for them to always be close to me? Are you willing to pay that price? For he understood that one day James and John would suffer because of their walk with him. I wonder if you're ready to pay that price. That's the question we ask this parent, these parents who stood here. Are you willing to make the commitment it's going to require for James and John to stand by Jesus? In ancient Japan, there's a place called the place where they leave their mothers. So named because of an ancient custom of a son taking his dying mother up a mountain, leaving her there to die. And one day this boy was taking his mother in his arms, this dying mother up this mountain to leave her at the place where they leave their mothers. And, and neither would say a thing, although both knew what was, all, what was happening. But the boy noticed that his mother would reach out and break a twig from the, from the branches, little twigs from the branches. And finally he asked, Mother, why are you breaking those twigs from the branch? She said, so you won't get lost on your way down. It's the kind of love that Mary had for her son. Kind of love that would never let him go, even when he chided her for her lack of understanding in the temple. Even when, he even when he rebuked her, when she requested of him in Cana of Galilee, even when he refused to go home with her when she asked him and thinking he was mentally ill, even when he died a criminal's death on the cross, she had a love for him that would not let him go. Do your children know you have that kind of love for them? 
Do they understand that no matter, that your love for them is so deep, no matter what you do, it will never change. No matter how deep you fall, no matter how far you stray, they know your, their, their parents are going to be there. You're going to be there to forgive and to welcome them back and to pick up the pieces. Do they know that about you? And have you made that commitment that, 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 will, that will enable you to bring them up next to Jesus regardless of the cost? What is this going to cost you? That's the question she pondered and we ponder. One last thought, please. She must have pondered, treasured in her heart, thought the nearness of God. Something strange was happening in that stable and this best loved of all New Testament stories. Heaven was aflame with a bright light. Angels were singing. Shepherds were acting goofy. It was a strange night. And perhaps as she sat there in that stable with that baby in her arms, she must have remembered the Scripture. She knew the Old Testament. She knew the Scripture that said that the chastisement of our peace is on Him. By His stripes we are healed. That He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. She knew that that he was like a lamb, dumb before his shearers, opening not his, his mouth, saying not a word. She knew that. She must have thought of that scripture. Unto us a son is born. Unto us a child is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And if Moses felt like he had to take off his shoes because he stood on holy ground in the presence of God, and if Isaiah cried, Woe is me, for I'm unclean. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Surely she must have felt the strange nearness of God and must have thought in her heart, If I reach out my hands, I'll touch the Holy One. You know, I have found it to be true that God is most near where mothers are. God is most near where mothers are. You bring in 20 mothers and line them across the front, kids fussing and crying, etc. I dare you to sit in that place and not sense the nearness of God. Mothers are always near. God is always near where mothers are. Somebody asked 500 college students what they thought to be the, the, the most beautiful word in the English language. 422 of them said, Mother, without hesitation. Ethel White said, Mother's power is the greatest force in the world for God. Thomas Edison testified, I am what I am because my mother made me. Abraham Lincoln said, I am who I am because of my darling mother. On her deathbed, she looked at him and said, Abe, be somebody. John Wainamaker, the great industrialist who served in high places in America, some of the highest positions in American politics, was asked, what is the most glorious hour of your life? Without hesitation, he said, it was the day my mother folded my tiny baby hands in prayer. John Randolph said, I would have been an atheist had my mother not taught me to pray early in life. It was attested that, 
that Henry Thoreau's mother was such that it made it impossible for him to be a Christian. But John Wesley's mother was such it made it impossible for him to be anything else. Someone said God couldn't be everywhere, so he made mothers. Now the theology of that is wrong. God can not only be, but is everywhere. What he meant was the statement somebody made that God, that the name mother is the name for God on the lips and in the hearts of little children. For wherever mothers are, God seems to be near. I have worshiped in churches and chapels. I've prayed in the busy streets. I've sought my God and have found him where the waves of his ocean beat. I have knelt in the silent forests in the shade of some ancient tree. But the dearest altar that has ever been raised was raised at my mother's knee. I've listened to God in the temple. I've caught his voice in the crowd. I've heard him speak where the breakers are booming long and loud where the gentle breeze blows soft in the treetops, my Father has talked to me, but I have never heard him more clearly than I heard him at my mother's knee. The things in my life that are worthy were born in my mother's breast and were breathed into mine by the magic of the love that her life expressed. And the years that have brought me to manhood have carried her far from me, but memory keeps me from straying too far from my mother's knee. God, make me the man of her vision and purge me of selfishness. God, make me live up to her standards and live that my life would bless. And God, hallow the holy impress of the days that used to be and make me a pilgrim forever to the shrine at my mother's knee. And R.A. Torrey started to leave home to go to the far country. And his mother brought her Bible in to her son and said, Son, when the day gets tough and dark, you can call on your mother's God and get help. And in the far country, he had wasted his substance in riotous living and was toying with the thought of suicide as he played with a pistol. And all of a sudden, he remembered his mother's last words. He got out her Bible that he'd never read opened it up, and on his knees he prayed this prayer. O God of my mother, whoever you are, wherever you are, these times are dark and tough. I need your help. The question I want to ask in closing is this. When the time gets tough and the day gets dark, can your children call on their mother's God and get help.
Would you bow with me? Father, I thank you for the example and the love of Christian mother who made sure that her son was introduced to God and who pressed him in her prayer to the ministry. And I shall always be and eternally forever grateful. And I sense this morning a responsibility as a parent of the price, the cost, the commitment that demands. And I pray, God, you'll make me equal to the responsibility. And I pray that for each of us who are here today on this special day. In Jesus' name. Now I have three invitations this morning. The first invitation is for you to come to receive Jesus Christ in personal faith. Come receiving Christ as Savior. To repent of sin means that you turn away from your self-life and trust Jesus and Jesus alone. Have you ever done that? The second invitation this morning is for those of us who would like to come and unite with the church. Some have asked, how do you do that? You just come and tell us, I want to be a part of this fellowship and we'll, we'll indicate to your church that you've come and joined us to follow us here, follow the Lord with us here. The third invitation I'm going to ask of you is a difficult one. That is for you, husband and wife, father and mother, just to come. Just reach over and take her hand, husband, father. And you come to dedicate your home to God, just as these have done this morning. Just stand here facing me. We'll have a time of dedication. If you're not having a family altar, if Christ is not the Lord, the head of your home, I'd invite you and I'd encourage you, I'd urge you to do that today. Just come and stand here. Those who are coming for those other two decisions, you'll come and meet Lee here, and I'll join the rest of you here, and we'll have prayer together in just a moment. We invite you to come while we stand to sing.